Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the latest Shiny Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Spector. And with me, of course, is Mr. Rob Hirschfeld. Rob, uh, good day to you. Stephen. So it's, an, it's another Friday recording for podcasts, Rob, and I'm really liking Fridays, I have to say, because it's, you know, you get energy level back up. It's not like recording on the Tuesday. <laughs> so down, it's downflip. For, for Austin, the, the, there's a lag in, in when these are published, but in Austin right now, it's Austin City Limits weekend, so... Oh my God! Uh, neighborhood inundated with uh, stumbling drunk people, all happy, sunburned. But no, we've hit we've hit fall weather. here up in Boise, so you know I can no longer talk about how great the weather is because it's it was in the 40s yesterday. Although all my leaves have changed colors, so there's hope. Well, let's let's go. We have a really interesting guest, and I'm very excited. Um, we, we're reaching out into a new space on Edge, and so I've asked Dean Bubbly to join us today. Uh, Dean, thanks for uh, joining. Welcome. Oh, thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to it. So, Dean, give us a little background uh, for our listeners who I think, I think you're going to give a whole new perspective to Edge, and it's going to be a really interesting conversation. So if you can just give us a short overview of uh, your background, where you come from, and then we'll jump into it. Sure. Uh, I'm a technology industry analyst um, primarily focused on mobile and uh, internet and network sectors. So I do a lot of work with the telecoms companies and currently I spend a lot of my time looking at you know, 5G and Wi-Fi and some stuff on, on regulation. And, and I, I suppose I've got a bit of a reputation as being um, somewhere between a skeptic and a curmudgeon. Um, a fair amount of what I do involves saying, yeah, sounds like a good idea, but. And then there's a sort of list of buts, which probably get up to 17 on most of the things where I'm, I'm covering. Uh, and so so I, I, I work, uh, I'm based in London, but I, I, I'm traveling half the time. I'm usually in the US about 10 times a year. Uh, and so I, I look at... Um, future trends in uh, things like, say, 5G, um, virtualization for the network side of things. And what does that mean for uh, telcos and other communication service providers? And so some of that's on the, the network side, some is around services and applications, um, not just on data, but on the future of voice and video. And, and over the last couple of years, I've also been doing a fair amount looking at um, uh, innovative areas like uh, blockchain and IoT and AI and how that fits together with uh, the, the network and telecom sectors as well. Oh, blockchain. We, we, we can save some time at the end for some a little blockchain conversation and, and AI. <laughs> stuff. Okay. Great, great guests on those topics related to edge and, te- and, and uh, networks and things like that. Um, Steven, do you want to you explain a little bit what uh, really yeah, so I, Dean and, and why we wanted him on the show? Yeah, so there was an uh, article that Dean put out, and uh, it went out in May. It just took me some time to find it, called Network-Based Edge Computing, Overhyped and Underpowered, and it's on NetManias. Is that how you say it? Dean? Well, it's, it's actually, it was on, I, I put out my uh, articles on a few different uh, okay. channels. So my own blog is called Disruptive Wireless, which is a, a bit of a legacy of when I just covered um, wireless networks, but also my LinkedIn, I post quite a lot of articles and then shorter posts. And there's a Korean technology blog called NetManias, which uh, yeah, sometimes asks if they can 
syndicate my uh, my content as well. So it sounds like it's the, the Korean yeah, one that you've picked up. That I found. A, it's a small world. And what I thought was really interesting, and again, if you're, uh, you know, we'll have the link to the uh, article as well connected to this podcast. But it's a fantastic article because it talks about how much power it takes to power all these devices. And it looks at this idea of the edge where we think, oh, yeah, these cell towers, we're going to have data centers at cell towers and all these things that, you know, from kind of from the world I come from. Yeah, you just put data centers there. And you're actually talking about how in the world do you power these things? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, the history of this is that you know, I've been hearing for years that you know, you're going to have this sort of, at least in theory, the, the mobile industry would love to believe you're going to have a a grid of compute facilities uh, co-located with cell towers or maybe um, fixed and cable uh, central offices and exchanges and streets like cabinets. Uh, and I, I went to an event uh, in January, which was more aimed at the sort of data center community. And they were talking about you know, megawatts of power and kilowatts per rack and um, you know, much larger amounts of, uh, of energy used in um, data centers and the cloud more broadly. And I've also seen a couple of stats on, um, you know, how many, you know, how the, the largest uh, data centers were going up beyond you know, 50, 100, 200 megawatt um, uh, facilities. Uh, one, one site was even talking about expanding to a gigawatt, how they have their own power stations. Uh, they put them in the Arctic where they can use hydroelectric power or whatever it happens to be. Uh, I just, there was a bit of a disconnect in terms of sort of orders of magnitude I had people talking to me about, um, you know, particularly where, you know, when we start talking about, especially 5G, um, one of the things you're going to need with 5G networks is much smaller cells and what are called small cells, um, sometimes pico cells or femtocells, which are essentially mini base stations you can bolt to a wall or a, a lamppost or something like that. I, I, I just thought that there was a bit of a... A disconnect um, when I heard about the the telecom companies wanting to do edge computing using their infrastructure, and in, at least if you listen to some of the rhetoric from the carriers and the, their vendors, you know they, they want to become sort of I suppose distributed quasi Amazons, and and I, I just wasn't sure that the, the numbers added up. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then there's this other side, which is the numbers, yeah. the, the compute, which is actually on the devices themselves. And uh, that was uh, another part of the, the, the overall picture. We're going to have some fun because I want to deconstruct uh, this a lot. I want to I get to the data because you, you do have some hmm. data on it. Um, I, but before, before we get there, I, I do want to pull, pull apart a little bit of some of the, the architectural pieces that you're describing. Um, so that, that we can make sure people we're all like we're all talking on the same same page and people understand where things are going. I, I, we have had some guests in the past. Jason Hoffman jumps to mind hmm. talking about power requirements and the um, the dro the hangar uh, podcast about drones, um, where the power of the IoT device and shifting compute um, and, and battery and compute demands into edge data centers away from the device was actually a, a considerable commercial factor, right? So um, just to, yes. just, right, uh, for Jason, mm -hmm. it was AR uh, headsets needing smaller batteries and less yeah. AI no, no. because uh, I mean, on the device, moving it, to, moving it to a cell tower. 
Right. Well, there's, there's a couple of things here. Yeah. There's an earlier post that I did, which was looking at the sort of 10 different definitions of edge that I'd come across. Because that was the, the, one of the other precursors to this was, was me hearing this term edge, meaning anything from a, a tier three city having a smallish data center um, down to the device vendors talking about edge as being, it could be an IOT gateway, or it could even be the, the you know, a, a, an AI or, or neural processing chip on a device itself. Um, and so I, 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 I did another post somewhere, which is identifying all of the different um, you know, definitions of edge. Um, and the fact that there's, there's essentially no common language um, when you start using that word. Um, right. And I agree with Jason. Funny enough, I was talking to someone from his company this week, um, and I, I agree that there is certainly a desire for the lowest power, um, you know, particularly battery-powered IoT devices, um, to reduce the load on the battery and therefore the weight of the battery and the size of the power consumption. Well, you can either do that with optimizing um, the compute on the devices with, with more efficient silicon, or you can offload and do that compute somewhere else, um, on the edge, on the cloud, wherever it happens to be. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, it can be to save power, or it could just be because of, of sheer throughput. Um, and so, for example, the example of a, a VR headset is a really good one, where obviously you not just have the, the power constraint for the device, but you also have physical factors that you don't want to be wearing you know, four pounds of battery around your skull um, if you've got a headset on, um, for, for sort of obvious ergonomic reasons. Right. And, and to me, some of that is, is ergonomic. Some of that is, and we'll, I love to look at the commercial driver, hmm. because... because this comes back to batteries are expensive. Yep. Um, if I can make a headset that relies on distributed compute in the environment, mm -hmm. uh, right? Avoiding the word edge in this case, but distributed yeah. compute in the environment, then I can make the headset cheaper and then pass the cost on as a use cost or a service cost based on actual use. <laughs> and, and just like cloud, where it's a consumption model in cost mm. that, you know, if we can turn consumer edge devices into consumption models, it seems like it frees up a lot of capital. I mean, a lot of this comes down to sort of the differing curves for improving um, compute per you know, metric of energy on a device, perhaps with, with improved generations of silicon versus the cost of power needed to, do the connectivity and ship bits, you know, backwards and forwards over, you know, Wi-Fi or 4G or 5G or whatever it is you're doing. And so there's, there's not much gain to be had is if you, if you end up saving energy on the compute and just use it all for the radio instead. So you, know, you look at where the curves are going on that and, and certainly 5G is more energy or theoretically more energy efficient, but then it depends on which frequency band. And, and one of the things that, that I see as another silo here is that the knowledge about the compute and the data centers is often very different to the knowledge about what's happening with uh, radio. And so one of the dirty secrets of 5G, for example, is that the frequencies most 5G networks are going to operate on, particularly for the ultra high speed stuff, aren't going to work indoors very well unless you have separate radio infrastructure locally. You, know, you start having people talking about millimeter wave or there's a bunch of auctions at the moment for 3.5 uh, gigahertz frequencies. 
that will struggle to go through the wall from an outdoor cell tower. So you then have to sort of have a specialized indoor radio infrastructure, which again is going to cost not just money, but adds considerable complexity to the overall solution. Um, particularly if it's in licensed spectrum and you need to sort of work with a, a service provider as an enterprise to do that. So I, there's lots of sort of intersecting things to consider here. So I was, we were, I was at a cable labs event, which is cable companies. Yeah. Uh, and, and we did a, a nice discussion uh, with Pelly from uh, mutable where we talked about, you know, the, the fiber in the ground. And so you've, you've got, you know, a lot of what you're describing radios are critical for these applications, hmm. but Right in the pico cells or, or, or the feta cells, where it's these tiny you know pieces, they're they're just fibered back into a base station. Um, you can keep the radio short. You could add people's home networks if you could assume that you were dealing with you know home fiber in the mesh. Right? I mean, isn't, doesn't that doesn't hmm. that sort of say well, we're going to have a lot of different types of antennas? Uh, yeah, and, and and then you get into all sorts of interesting issues around interference management and what happens if you've got a, a small cell at home or in the office and then you walk outside. Yeah, at what point does it go from the, the local network to the outdoor macro network and how do you, you – know, do you have the same frequency – or do you switch bands? You, know, this, 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 you end up in a, in a, funny enough, a radio networks conference uh, uh, this week in, in Rome, and it's those sort of issues which, which crop up on that part of the industry. But the, is, the, come, is, that, come, is that a big burden, though? I mean, is, oh. is switching different to you know, having a device that's on, you know, you know, my phone's on multiple devices. It switches, well, not perfectly, <laughs> not even close. But um, you know, that, um, that seems like it, people's normal experience. Um, yes and no. Where it gets tricky is um, managing the, the exact point at which you switch from one to the other. And the, the reason that it works well on your phone is that we're, whatever we are, eight years into having uh, 4G networks. And we've managed to work all that, that out quite nicely. If we'd have having this conversation in 2011, we would have been complaining about call drops more. Um, and uh, as I say, and it gets worse with some of the, the newer frequency bands, potentially. Yeah, there's a lot more parameters, and you end up with so many layers of complexity, you end up having to throw AI at the problem, potentially, to, to solve some of the you know, you know, million combinations uh, of scenarios that could occur. But coming back to what you were saying in the, in the first place, the, 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 the issue here is, yes, and sometimes you would want to use distributed or edge computing to offload um, from a device. Um, however, that is conditional upon you having access to a suitable network in a suitable place um, and using radios with suitably low power. Um, otherwise, you, you get a zero sum. And so, you know, a lot of people, for example, will talk about uh, vehicles on a highway and maybe you have a, a edge compute down the side of the highway. That's possible, but are you going to do that on, on every mile of highway across every you know, road network in the world? Well, probably not. And so you, you run into the issue of my autonomous vehicle, if it's driving through a, a forest in a rural area, is going to have to be truly autonomous and not rely on, on network connectivity because it can't be assumed or if it's in a parking garage. Um, so you end up needing to have, have it work offline as well as online. Um, which is a, a, an important design consideration for um, you know, various uh, Internet of Things use cases. Yeah, I, although I, I guess I would say that limiting uh, 
autonomous vehicles to certain high traffic routes or predictive routes isn't that big a burden, right? I mean, we're busing. <laughs> Buses and trains are certainly, especially if you're looking hmm. at public transit or um, um, freight lines or things like that, those are very predictable routes. Uh, yeah, and, and I would agree that in some cases, the early use cases, for we're, we're getting a little way away from this, but for, um, the, the, I'm expecting to see autonomous vehicles in, I don't know, the, cent the central business district of Singapore or Doha in Qatar or in certain uh, areas in... Um, North America where you've got good sight lines at junctions and relatively flat terrain but are you going to put it in the middle of an old world city with hills and vehicles parked on the on the, the, the sidewalk pavement and you know junctions which people have a relaxed attitude to red lights um, and you know, teenagers on motorbikes zooming around probably not so you're right you'll, you'll find that there'll yeah. be a truck on the highway which is in the, the autonomous trucks lane Although, although, yeah. and, and I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm being drawn into the, the, the <laughs> shiny, the shiny element of the, these um, intersections, some, but there's an extent to which in an intersection, I could build a intersection, dedicated intersection infrastructure that monitors that infrastructure and then hands off, you know, parsed information to the cars coming through that intersection. And realistically, would have much better AI, could learn that intersection, could actually do much better predictive analytics. Uh, if, it, if you if you said, and, and this is a good edge use case, right? So, and because we've had we've we've had a guest hmm. from AI, right, Simon, um, talking about exactly this type of thing, where in, you know putting AI in a fixed location that can learn that environment and adapt to that specific, and then it becomes a collaborative question, not a not a standalone question. Uh, I mean, potentially, yeah. The, the sort of the, the junction, yeah. If you like, it's the same. It's it's like having a traffic cop um, who's who's on, you know, manual traffic duty at that particular junction will understand its its quirks, and, you know, or, or commuters who drive through it every morning will will know which lane to be in. And, and yes, there is a certain amount of value in that. But if you think about how the connectivity on vehicles is likely to work. If it's going to be cellular, you're going to have, you know, however many networks, three, four, five networks in a given country, and you might find that Ford uses one network and GM uses mm. another, and you've got a bunch of legacy vehicles and motorbikes which don't use any of them. So then they all have to interconnect either locally with that um, uh, service, so which probably means using short-range radio, probably either Wi-Fi or something similar to it, or they have to go all the way back to the core of the the carrier network and back out to the edge again. Um, and it's that that tromboning or paperclip is a is a big issue for all sorts of things here. Yeah, particularly if you're talking about not just vehicles but smartphones. Yeah, my smartphone, I, I my my iPhone, I run a VPN. Uh, on it, which means that any all my data gets tunneled all the way through the network and comes out in, it could be in London, it could be in San Francisco, it could be in Helsinki, it could be in Tokyo, and then comes back to wherever the server is from there. Um, yeah, so you, you, you've got all sorts of possible network side gotchas, which may actually mean that, that what looks like the edge to you is actually almost a complete round trip. And, and this to me is, is a key element for edge because a lot of times, right, we boil edge down into a conversation about latency. Hmm. Um, and, and what you just described, and I, I, I hadn't heard the term tromboning before in this aspect, and I love it, um, is a huge prevention for sharing IoT data 
between sensors in your mesh, right? So, so if in the yeah. scenario you described, if every sensor in my house has a vendor, every vendor has to trombone back to their cloud provider and hmm. then share data to, you know, between services at the core, core being a cloud infrastructure, then I will never have a usable IoT mesh in my house. The latency of those interactions is going to be too high, right? Yes. Or what is more likely to have is you will have point-to-point in your house using, it could be Bluetooth or Zigbee, um, which is separate. Um, I sort of a, I mean, all, there's a term that gets used know, in the telecoms vendors, industry. That vendors agree. Right? Yeah, 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 true. I mean, I mean there's, a, there's a term that gets used a lot in the telecoms industry called local breakout because there's always going to be some data that you want to go back securely to a core location you know, or, or, or right through the, the, the carrier core and out to the internet. But then there's also other data that makes sense to deal with locally. You get this a bit, for example, on um, cloud-based uh, phone systems. You know, if you're if you're calling your colleague in in the same office building, it's it's stupid for the the voice or video to go all the way back to the network and then back out again to to your, the guy at the next desk. Um, so you would want ideally to have some sort of local connectivity, and the same is true for data or IoT. If I'm sending things from my PC to my printer. There's no point in going via the internet on the way when it's you know I'm, I'm sitting ten feet from the printer, and so then the question is how do I set everything up on I'm my la- device? I'm laughing because my printer tries to make me do exactly that. By, yeah. By, yeah. by subscribing to HP print uh, web print hmm. service. Um, uh, and I mean and that's fine, All right? Okay, so for a printer, you don't care if there's a two second latency. Right. Um, however, if I, if you're sending images to your TV screen or music or audio from a device um, to a, a voice recognition thing, yeah, then that becomes more of an issue. And if you're talking about an industrial setting where you've got, forget about milliseconds, it might be microsecond control loops yes. on some process control. Um, then you really can't do that. And frankly, you can't go to the nearest cell tower and you can't go to the nearest you know, network aggregation point either. It's pretty much going to be, you know, my, um, for microseconds, you, know, you, you, you need to have things as close as possible um, to the, the, the act between the sensor don't, and the computer. Don't we just end up single vendored from that perspective, though? I mean, yes. that's, that's what, you know, in, in the factory setting, and, and my experience with... IT is there is no real single vendor anything. Hmm. Uh, it, it just isn't the way we we innovate, right? So you end up with saying, oh, I want, you know, this vision detection system in my factory, mm-hmm. uh, and I need to have a system that's monitoring my inventory, and I need a system that's, uh, you know, doing the, the, you know, controlling the press or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. whatever factory is using. And I think that for, for, for the, those sort of real-time control systems, they will end up being well, single vendor or single integrator. The same is true in an autonomous vehicle where the, the company that's making the, the, the image sensors or the LiDAR isn't the same company that's making the brake pads. And yet I want to have, you know, if the future autonomous vehicle detects an animal jumping across the road, I, want, I don't want to have to go to the network for an algorithm to say, hey, is that a moose? 
yeah, that looks like a moose, and then sends a, a, a command back to the vehicle to hit the brakes. Um, right. I, 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 the next time, I mean, I've, I've done this at conferences with, with, with network people and AI people and said, hey, hands up, who would get in a vehicle which advertised it that it had cloud-based braking? <laughs> <laughs> and um, you don't get many hands going up. Yeah, so, so in that case, you're right. It's a closed loop. Uh, and the, if you like, the, the moose recognition algorithm, I want that in the vehicle, a microsecond away from the, 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 the braking uh, uh, circuitry. Which makes, right. That, and, and they're not the same vendor, though. So you're, hmm. we're cobbling these things together. Inside a car, right, the auto manufacturers are really uh, you know, their own integrators. They, they, don't, they don't make things. They integrate um, from other vendors, AI, I think it's, you're right, is going to be even more like that. And, and there you've got the luxury, right? So a vehicle, has, and this was in the, the, the article I posted, I mean, some of the compute boards that are going into connected vehicles and the first generation of autonomous vehicles have an amazing amount of compute power. Um, you know, some of the, the boards I'd seen from NVIDIA designed with this were sort of 500 watt computers, um, which is sort of almost like equivalent to a, a, a supercomputer from 10 or 20 years ago. So, uh, or an oven, <laughs> like putting it in a refrigerator in your car. Well, well, actually talking about refrigerator, it's actually um, 500 watts sounds like a lot, but it's about a third of the power that the aircon draws. So, and about a hundredth or a thousandth of the power that the electric motors to drive the wheels in a Tesla draw. So, 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 the, the, so, so making the environment suitable for the people is still a much bigger cost from a power perspective than the AI that's, that might actually be driving the car. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, what, what will happen is you will train the AI in a big data center where they'll take all the data from 10 million vehicles over you know, 20,000 miles each and they will come up with this week or this month's version of the software and then push that down to the vehicles. Um, yeah, the, and, and so there you, you, know, you don't need to have the, the low latency on the sort of improving the machine learning system. Um, you, you need more bulk power which is where you're going to end up with the, the, the hyperscale data centers but then some of the other stuff is going to be done on the vehicle now where the the, the edge might come in is the vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to infrastructure stuff whether it's the junction or this idea of multiple vehicles um you know coordinating with each other to form a moving platoon let's say but if you like that's going to be a secondary task um and so so one of my concerns here is that a lot of the, the, the and there are some good use cases for um, applications to run, if like near the vehicle that do need the, let's say one millisecond or 10 millisecond latency, they tend to be the secondary workloads in a lot of cases, um, particularly for, for vehicles. And you might say the same for, for drones as well, or possibly for VR. And, and so that being the case that you know, if, if you're, creating an infrastructure let's say you're um you know, a carrier that's putting um edge compute nodes along a road um you are likely to be doing the the nice to have applications like the vehicle to vehicle information and platooning the, then the question is that if you're the software you know, developer who's who's working for the, the the auto manufacturer you've probably got a list of 20 things you want to do and if 19 of them make sense to do in hyperscale data center on the vehicle and one makes sense to do yeah, at the edge of the roadside when you make your overall choice of cloud provider is that you know tail going to wag the dock and i don't think it is 
um, you know, you're going to you're going to be focused on the, the the things which are legal requirements or absolute musts for product features, and then you then look at the the, the secondary nice to haves, unless there's a very very specific regulatory imperative. I, it's, there's an interesting balance in what you're describing. I don't I don't want us to get too distracted by the autonomous hmm. vehicle because while it's really interesting, I think it's it's a bit of a special case. Yes, so much compute on it. Uh, but one of the things I know in my software experience is that moving software into highly regulated or legalist, legally fraught places is hard. <laughs> you have to be careful. Um, whereas, you know, if you, if you can put things, you know, the, the rate of change in the ancillary systems can be much more dynamic. And so I, you know, when I look at, at not just cars, but any systems, there are places where there's high risk changing the software or um, high burden to change the software. Hmm. And then there's, there's places where if you can move something out of that range where it's much more dynamic, you can then have a faster innovation pace or you can reduce the risk of a failure. And one of the benefits to me of these edge, these, you know, edge infrastructures, um, not on the device, but the next tier down is that you could create a much more manageable software environment um, for those people, right? More IT-like rather mm. than, than device-like. And I think that for some things, that makes a huge amount of sense. Now, the interesting question is, is the IT-like, if you then want to add into that network-like, um, where you think you have to think not just about the IT domain, but is all of this a a virtual network function which ties into a carrier's uh, you know network function virtualization architecture and, and management orchestration? Um, then I think you 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 go back up the complexity chain again. And and what I like that you're also bringing in with this is the radio cost and the bandwidth and radios and things like that. If everybody showed up. Today, uh, and I, I want to actually bring it straight back to your, your power and the, and the blog post, because what part of what you're saying is, is that we have this fantasy that we might be able to just offload things from the device and push them into the edge. Yeah. And that means radio issues. That means power issues. Right. That. Anyway, so yeah, and, and also the fact that you might have four or five different competing uh, networks um, replicated by however many countries you're dealing with around the world with limited interoperability. And so then actually you're talking about, you know, 100 or 200 different edge, edge providers and you end up, if you're, if you're providing an a IoT solution in US, across Europe, Australia, Singapore, China and South Africa, you then end up with your legal departments trying to negotiate a bunch of mutually different um, edge compute deals with all the, local, all the local telcos. Now it's possible they could get their act together and have a shared um, uh, API that operates between them, but it's unlikely to be implemented in exactly the same way on the same infrastructure with the same radio network performance in in, in all of those markets. Um, yeah, on all of the networks in each of those markets as well, or having some sort of roaming between them, and you don't end up in yeah, that. That's uh, an interesting set of challenges. The alternative, though, is that if I want to do a in-field system, I'm going to end up having to build an IT infrastructure to support that system, right? I was just uh, getting, I was in a Twitter conversation with somebody 
last night who mm. was saying, oh, I just I, I was walking through airport security and the imaging systems they use actually have a little server. Uh, like he said two a two U server cage chassis um, sitting next to every actually two two U servers sitting next to every scanner uh, on the floor, <laughs> and 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 I, it just makes my head explode. But they're doing that because the the airport doesn't have a way to create an edge data center that conforms to a place where the vendor of that system can say, oh, I'm just going to get some shared resources in a consistent you know, protocol way. That to me is, I think there's a, a really interesting opportunity for what I, I'm starting to call private edge um, uh, data centers. And uh, you know, which something like an airport or a shopping mall or a factory, yeah, I could quite imagine it's, it's essentially it's the next generation of, of you know historically just what you call the server room. Um, and I, I suspect that if you like the fundamental quantum of one of those sort of enterprise edge data centers is probably going to be a forty foot shipping container in a car park somewhere. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the ship, the shipping container, is is turned into this sort of universal physical con uh, container for all sorts of things. Everything from a hotel room to a, a retail outlet to a data center to um, an energy supply unit, yeah, because it fits on the back of a, a standard truck or it can right. go on a standard you can, you can standard ship. Deliver it. The, the delivering yeah. it turns out that delivering something is actually as important as containing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Environmental. Yeah. And stacking them. So, and so I think the 40-foot shipping container with 10 racks of servers put in the car, in the car park next to um, you know, where you've both got a power supply and there's a, um, uh, you know, the, the fiber runs underneath it um, probably makes sense. Um, and particularly when you then say, well, I don't think, well, um, Amazon bought 600 cam uh, car parks attached to Whole Foods stores a year or so ago. And, um now has a large network of such such sites, and it made me wonder if that was a, um, a, a real estate play as much as anything. And that's an interesting component for this. So does does that change the power dynamics that you were you were analyzing? If we yeah. can all of a sudden count on malls and you know, Whole Foods and WalMarts and retail you know retails and airports to start saying, oh, we're going to set up these data centers and power them, and we're, you know, we have a base load that we need to do, it's sort of where Amazon starts, right? We have a base load. We can then rent the excess capacity or build enough capacity that we can rent it. Does that address your concerns about power and, and radio? Um, for some applications, yeah. Uh, and it depends on the, on, the, on the physical location. But I mean, just, I just wanted to sort of get a bit more context to sort of the way I see the overall universe of compute. And I, I did a back of an envelope calculation and thought in 55 years time, so say 2023, what you, what we get is roughly speaking, what looks like a dumbbell, which is like two big lumps of compute at the device and at the hyperscale data center connected by a relatively thin um, you know, bit, which is the, the network. And, and the, what I, I tried to try to work out was the total aggregate amount of compute everywhere, and so that's from servers in, in a massive Amazon data center down to the processors in a phone or even on a standalone sensor. And and I thought, I mean, although it's a bit unfair to use um, watts of power as a 
as, as a, a single metric, it's the closest you're, you're going to get to something which unifies compute, storage, uh, CPU and GPU, uh, data transmission, and ultimately it's all it's all energy needed to manipulate bits. It's all playing around with entropy. Right. And, and, it's and, and, ultimately a good a good co least common denominator for measuring data centers, right? It's, hmm. You know, I've, I've seen infrastructure masons uh, building some trying to standardize how people measure um, their watt efficiency and things like that. It, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with the work and yet it has everything to do with the work. It seems, it feels to me. And so that's. Exactly. And, and if you like at one end, you've got data centers in the tens or hundreds of megawatts. And then at the other end, you've got um, the sen a sensor, um, which might only have a 10 milliwatt draw um, in, in idle mode. So you've got like 12 orders of magnitude of power here where right. you've got various things along that, that sort of logarithmic uh, chart. And you've got a, a smartphone processor that might be a, a watt or two. You've got, um, well, the cell tower, which a typical cell, um, major cell tower might be a one or two kilowatt power supply. You've got the sort of edge data centers that the sort of, it could be, you know, 50 kilowatts or something like that. And you go all the way up to the megawatts. And, and ultimately, when you, when you add them all together, you get gigawatts. Uh, and, and it was that calculation that I was looking at of, of where are the gigawatts. So you might have a, only a um, one or two watt processor in your, in your phone, but there's a billion of them around the planet or five billion of them around the planet. Right. Same thing with your PC or your car or something like that. And, and that's, you know, I, I, I like that Stephen started with Mark Tillis. Um, post on this about just the physical ability to buy and ship silicon, what you're actually saying is, hey, before we get too excited about edge, the power infrastructure to, even if we could produce all the silicon and put it on in all these remote data centers, wouldn't necessarily, uh, needs, needs to get built out, doesn't exist, it's not where people think it is. From that perspective, it's an interesting balance. Yeah, I mean, in, in particular, I mean, a, I mean, the good, good example is like, is this? Let's take a cell tower, which is where people often will talk about edge computing. So, a typical cell tower has one or two kilowatt power supply, which is obviously needed for the radio itself, the the baseband processors, the maybe the air conditioning in in some places that you need for to keep the electronics cool, um, uh, and so on. But it's essentially it's all about the network, and obviously, and the the backhaul connection as well, back to the core of the network. So you have a one to two kilowatt power supply. I mean, let's be generous and say that efficiency improves even with 5G higher throughput. Let's say you can dedicate 10% of that total power budget to third party compute. So you have 100 watts. Um, and that's been we have some pretty generous assumptions, to be honest, given that the 5G is probably going to be more powerful in various ways. Um, and it, well, what can you do with a hundred watts of compute? And the answer is you can you can do a fair amount, but you have to be quite selective. You're not going to be running real time video processing for a thousand homes in that area, doing advertising insertion and transcoding for different types of screen all on the fly um, for everyone in that that cell towers area if they're all watching the the TV. Um, you know, what you might be able to do is the analytics of, of, of viewing figures, uh, maybe people who are doing some sort of transaction, 
um, for pay-per-view, maybe um, for sort of VR and AR, perhaps some of the, the signaling traffic for, I don't know, a multiplayer game. But you're probably not doing the heavy-duty graphics rendering. Um, yeah, and, and so then you think, well, okay, that's that's you know, that, that, it's, it's it's certainly it's valuable, but it's not the sort of the distributed version of AWS that people were saying it might be. It's not right. The distributed version of AWS is. It, I think it's going to end up being a different model. What you described is is actually telco, more captive telco infrastructure, but at the same time, if the telcos can make money, it. Hmm. it Right. I, I'm, I, my, my pushback on this is that if there is a revenue stream that the telcos could capture by mm -hmm. doing that processing, they will yeah. find the power <laughs> to, to do it if it just if it means them buying, you know, buying infrastructure or putting up more capacity in a region, um, then, then Maybe. they're going to they're going to they're going to look at the, the ad revenue that they're not making right now and, and, and build right. on. Well, well, there's a few things, right? I mean, first off, it's worth noting that almost every, and I've spent some time this week going through the um, corporate social responsibility reports for a number of carriers, and, and all of them are focused on reducing their energy consumption and greenhouse gases. Um, yeah, they all they all actually report on how much energy they use and how many tons of CO two it's equivalent to. So, so yeah, first off, you need to consider uh, um, get buy in from your CSR people that your overall energy consumption as a, as a corporation might go up. Or and you might be able to say, well, we'll buy it all from green data centers or sorry, green energy sources. So you might be able to get around that. But that's that's a sort of a, a high level problem. The the bigger problem is. If they are, if they can make revenue, and and to be honest, in theory, you know, service providers or any company could make revenue from nearly anything. But the question is, are they organisationally set up for it? Are they technologically set up for it? And do their customers want to buy it from them? And you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, you know, most network operators are not great at selling what amounts to sort of wholesale B two B services. Um, you know, they've been trying to uh, do um, you know, API-led you know, platform-as-a-service plays in all sorts of sectors for years. So you know, if you look at the, the voice and, and, and video uh, market, you have the, the, the 800-pound corridor is Twilio. Now, virtually every network operator has tried to build their own in-house Twilio over the last five years and has, has largely failed. Um, yeah, there's not really an open marketplace for things like quality of service. If you speak to any of the, the virtual network operators or CLEX, they have a nightmare trying to buy wholesale capacity. So you know, the, the wholesaling part of particularly mobile operators is, is, is not the, the, the most slick uh, of operations. Now, and, we're, we're, sorry, go and, on. Go and I, and I, I, would, I, would, I would say that people underestimate Amazon's innovation, they think of it as all this data center tech. In some yeah. ways, you just described the real innovation, which is figuring out how to sell it, it's, not yeah. how to build it. It's, exactly. Um, it's, it's how to sell it and then also convincing your customers how to buy it. And, and so I, I, this, this is what I love about it because I think we just nailed and we, we did a, um, uh, our, our podcast with Rich where we actually talked about the commercial component. Um, this is the harder, the harder thing on edge is not the tech. It's, it's the sharing, shared infrastructure cost models that we have to build. Yeah. 
Ah, oh, there's so much to talk about there. And the contracting. I mean, imagine you're the head of edge procurement for an auto manufacturer or a, a you, know, you actually even make it, make it a less technical um, uh, company. Let's say, let's say you are a um, augmented reality games developer and you want to buy edge compute capability for your game, which is going to go out in the app store in you know, dozens of countries you suddenly have to track down someone selling edge compute capability in a meaningful sense for 50 telecom carriers around the world in different languages and different regulatory regimes with different rules on privacy and, and uh, uh, data retention. Um, and you're a game developer. Yeah. And, and you're used to buying storage from Amazon you know, with a single point of contact. Yeah, and all of a sudden you've got to get in contact with the head of edge compute sales for Turkcell, who, who, you know, to be honest, is in, and they're used to selling to energy companies and the local health service and yeah, a bunch of others. And, and you're an AR developer in in where you know, Bangalore or, or San Diego. You're not going to be able to do that. You, you're going to have to hire a whole legal department just to negotiate the contract. So, Dean, this is Steve Spector, and to our listeners, you know what this means, and I apologize, Dean, just as we got an interesting topic. So, I, I want to thank you for joining us. I know we, we hit a number of different things, and as usual, whenever we talk edge, autonomous cars, but I do love the virtual reality stuff, and I, you know, there are people willing to put a three-pound thing on their head, I believe. <laughs> and, uh, unfortunately, yeah. there's a lot of those people. But, uh, Dean, unfortunately, we do have to stop. I, I think we'll bring you in another time. I want our listeners to know where to go to follow you, to get your posts, uh, that kind of information, because I do think you have a lot of insight into a space that uh, from you know, the world that Rob and I come from, we need to learn more about. So wh where should our listeners go? Right. Well, first off, I'm, I'm Disruptive Dean on Twitter, which is probably the easiest way to find me. Um, and then also uh, under my uh, name, name, Dean Bubbly, that's B-U-B-L-E-Y on LinkedIn. Uh, I also post quite a lot of uh, both posts and articles. Um, my, my blog is Disruptive Wireless, but that mostly replicates things I have elsewhere. And I'll, I'll link through from Twitter anyway. So I'd say those are probably the, the best online resources. And then I end up at I don't know, 30, 40 conferences a year, which some of them are uh, compute related, some are telecom, some are IOT. So uh, uh, watch out for me uh, uh, around various uh, uh, industry events. Dean and Rob, thank you. Really good podcast. And hopefully I can get this out without Mr. Neville, who's decided to tell me that <laughs> the podcast is over all 10 pounds of this little dog. Thank you to both of you and thank to our you. listeners. We hope you... Um, Really enjoyed this. Uh, looking for feedback? Are you looking for more us to bring in more people like Dean to give us a whole different perspective? My assumption is yes. And uh, if you know someone that we should talk to, uh, certainly let us know. Well, thank you to both of us for joining, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dean.